Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. How are we going today? Good? Awesome. So uh, my name is Mark. If I haven't got to know you, I'd love to get to know you at some stage after the service. I have the privilege of working at Mueller College as a teacher. <clears throat> I teach maths over there. Don't hold that against me. And I'm involved in running the chapel services. And I'm, I've been involved in Creekside for some time. So it's great to be here today. Now, I'm going to do a few things. I've, I've, I've had the privilege of speaking for quite some time now. And I've learned some things over the years. Here's some things you shouldn't do. Number one, if you're going to use a movie or a song, then you should try to use a movie or a song that's relevant and culturally, you know, kind of in the, in the present. You shouldn't use something from 10 or 15 years ago. I'm going to break that rule today. Number two, usually because I am a maths teacher, I think in terms of problem and solution, and I try to um, usually raise a problem and then go to the Bible to see what God would say about the solution. I'm going to do the opposite today and mess everything up. And number three, I've learned over the years, you never start with a video because a video might grab people's attention, but it doesn't in any way, shape or form connect the speaker with the audience. But I'm going to start with a video today and it's not just a, a, a video, it's a video without sound. You cannot get a worse decision when it comes to starting a, a talk, but we're going to have a look at that video now. Check it out. There we go. (laughs) So whilst you may never have actually stolen a wallet or you may have stolen a wallet at some stage in your past, we can all relate to, to doing the wrong thing. And at times, after doing the wrong thing, we want to cover it up. We want to, in some way, hide um, from what we've done. Uh, If you have a Bible there today, we're going to start today by having a look at a passage from the Bible. It's actually very uh, from the very beginning, the story of Adam and Eve. And if you're kind of new to church, you're in the process of exploring Christianity, then one of the things that may be a concern for you is when you read some stories in the Bible and it seems like there's some some pretty crazy supernatural stuff happening. Like you, you read stories about... You know, this guy Jonah and a whale, I mean, swallowed by a whale or a large fish or whatever it is. Or you, you read stories about Moses parting the, the sea or Jesus walking on water. Today we're going to look at a story where, you know, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden and there's a talking snake and all sorts of stuff. If that's one of the reasons that maybe you've been turned off Christianity, we want you to know that, that we acknowledge that that is a barrier for some people. The whole idea that God is a supernatural God could actually be one of the reasons why you're a bit sceptical about Christianity. Maybe you like the idea of Christianity being about values, being about love, being about um, wholesome living, being about you know, good ways to improve your marriage or finances, but you're not sure about the supernatural. Um, for those of us who are Christians, we actually do believe that God is a supernatural God. Super mean above or outside of. He is above or outside of the natural and that he has authority and power over all things. And that when we read the supernatural events that happen in the Bible, we believe they actually happened. But if that's some of your questions about, we'd love for you to come and have a chat with us, come and chat with myself. I can see Earl here. He's a very experienced pastor, far more than I am. So we'd love to, for you to be able to talk with him. I think Dan's around and there's many other people that you could talk to. So um, just want you to feel really welcome. And if that's a concern, then just put it on the list of things that you can kind of um, address. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up. Uh, God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no 
sin, no guilt, no shame. They could eat from any tree of the garden at any time of the day. At the centre of the garden, there was the tree of life that gave them eternal life. There was no sickness, no disease, because the tree of life sustained them. There was no death. They would have lived eternally in the garden forever with God. But God did say, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. And then um, we pick up in verse 6, and this is what happened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it, and he ate it. Now, before we go any further, um, if you're just doing a very quick read of Genesis, you may be inclined to think that the writer of Genesis is is putting the blame Um, on the woman for what happened here on Eve. That is not the case. If you read on, you'll see that both the man and the woman are equally held responsible for their actions and their rebellion. It is not a case in any way, shape or form of people blaming the woman for what happens. In fact, if you were to read in the New Testament... A church leader by the name of the Apostle Paul, uh, he at one stage even says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. So there's no way in the world that that Eve is copying the blame for this on her own. In verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Here we find that before Adam and Eve had copped any consequences for their sin, before God had taken any action, before they'd been told that because of their actions, they're going to be booted out of the garden, before they were cut off from the tree of life, before they were told that sin and death has entered the world, before any consequences whatsoever had been inflicted upon them, Adam and Eve felt guilt. Adam and Eve felt shame. They realised their nakedness and their vulnerability and they longed to cover up. They lost their innocence they wanted to hide their true selves from each other. Now, we read this ancient story and, and think it may not have much to do with us, but we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, we portray an image to others that, if we're honest, is not really a true reflection of who we are on the inside. I don't want people to see who I truly am. I don't know if they'd understand me. I'm not sure they'll love me and accept me. So I need to portray an image. I need to project an image that is a better version of myself. I don't want people to see everything about me. I want them to see the best parts of me. I, in some way, shape or form, have found a way to cover up. A lady by the name, an author by the name of Shauna Nequist wrote an article once. She said, stop Instagramming your perfect life. We all find ways to Instagram our perfect life. It just comes out in different ways. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered them, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now what's interesting here is that Adam and Eve had already realised that they were naked and had already covered up. They'd already sewn fig leaves together and they'd already clothed themselves. They'd already found a way to cover themselves. So why is it that when God enters the garden, they feel the need to hide? Isn't covering up enough? But it would seem that when we're truly exposed for who we are, when we're truly confronted with our sin, covering up isn't enough. There's something in us that longs not just to cover up, but to run and hide. We actually see this expressed in a song that I'd like you to check out. Check out this video. And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think that they 
is this song? Does anyone know it? I have Malteser mints. They're called Malteser teasers. That doesn't even make sense. Anyway, I have this. For anyone who can name me the song title and artist, does anyone want to have a go? Oh, who is it? Sorry? What is it? I love that you just yelled out. Confident. <laughs> there you go. Iris Goo Goo Dolls. Now, in this song, um, sorry, Johnny Resnick, the lead singer of Goo Goo Dolls, is up in a tower, and you might have seen him with his telescope there. He's looking out upon everyone else. He wants to connect, but he's also hiding. He doesn't want them to see him. He knows that there's a longing for connection, but the last thing he wants to do is for people to see him. And he sings in the lyrics, I don't want the world to see me because I don't think they'd understand. There's a sense in which for all of us, this is our story. We don't really want to be exposed. We don't want to be naked. We won't want people to see our true selves. We're worried what they would find out and we're worried that they wouldn't understand, they wouldn't love us and they wouldn't accept us. Now, as Stu said, the song is called Iris. Do you know where, this, where that word is mentioned, Stu, in the song? Okay. <laughs> Luckily, you didn't need to get that right for the chocolate. It is not mentioned in the song at all. He's done this, this tricky thing that I guess arty people do. I'm not arty at all. Where he's named the song Iris despite the fact the word Iris never appears in the lyrics. But aren't you in for a treat? Because we're going to do a little science lesson on the eye. Aren't you excited? I mean, sometimes you come to church, you're not sure what you're going to get. Today is about science, people. Now, have a look at this diagram. Here is a picture of the eye. Now, before I go any further, I should say the only subject I found at uni was anatomy. This is what I found out. I can do maths, I can do physics, I can do high-level problem solving. I cannot memorise. I failed anatomy, and I failed it really, really well, right? Zero percent. So here we have the iris. In a sense, the iris is like the curtains and the pupil is like the window. What's the purpose of the curtain? The purpose of the curtain is to stop the light from coming in. What's the purpose of the iris? It's to, it's to, um, to regulate the amount of light that comes through the pupil. Why does he call it iris? Because he wants, he's using the term iris to talk about this is another way in which he can hide from the light. He goes on to say in the rest of the chorus, I don't want the world to see me because I don't think they'd understand. When everything's made to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. On one hand, I don't want you to know who I am. I don't want you to see my true self. I'm worried. I'm anxious. If you knew who I truly was, if I knew who you truly were, could we really love and accept each other? But on the other hand, when everything's made to be broken... I need someone in my life who can see me for who I truly am. I need someone in my life who sees my brokenness, who sees my ugliness, who sees my flaws and loves me and accepts me and understands me anyway. There's a deep longing in all of us to be loved and known. So the question I want to ask today is this. How do we experience the love and acceptance that we truly long for when we're so afraid to show our true selves? How do we experience the love and acceptance that we truly long for when we're so afraid to show our true selves? Now, I'm going to put it out there. I think the answer to this is obvious. We need to create communities of love, don't we? Gav spoke about community groups before. We're launching a whole heap of new community groups. We want those community groups to be community groups of love. 
We want this church to be a church of love. We want Carmichael College and Carmichael Kids and Creekside Cafe to be communities of love. We want our society to be communities of love. We want our world to be one huge community of love. And what does that love look like? Well, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you would have heard that we are to love one another as we love ourselves. Years ago, when Jesus was on the scene, there was a religious leader, a teacher of the law, one of the, the, the people who'd studied the old covenant or the old agreement that God had made with Moses about with the religious people, uh, with the Israelites, sorry. And he was a spiritual leader in that community. And he came to Jesus and he said, Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then Jesus says, actually, even though you've only asked me one, I'm going to give you two. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, whether you've been to church or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've even been remotely around any kind of Christian or not, you would have heard someone at some stage say, love your neighbour as yourself. Treat others as you would like to be treated. And that seems to be the solution, doesn't it? If we could create communities, if we could create churches, if we could create societies, if we could launch community groups where we treat each other the way we would like to be treated, where we love each other as ourselves, then that would be the solution. Then I could feel vulnerable. Then I could be authentic. Then I could let you in and you could let me in and we could have the deep, true community that we long for. The problem is I just don't think that's going to work. Now, I'm going to go against what is probably the most commonly, one of the most commonly held beliefs across all religions and all people here. But loving one another as ourselves will not work. Let me see if I explain. If Gav and I are in a community group together, and I think Gav is a great guy and he, he's, got, he's got everything going for him. But as he begins to be more and more vulnerable and more authentic and I begin to see his flaws, and as I begin to be more vulnerable and more authentic and he sees my flaws, what happens when he sees a flaw that he thinks, hang on, I don't know if I'd do that. I mean, Mark, I can accept you, you know, I can understand that you do this and we all struggle with this and this is understandable, but hang on, I, I would never do something like that. We've heard people say I would never do something like that. I can accept this and I can accept this, but I can't go that far. What happens when he begins to see sides of me that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't empathise with, that he doesn't think are right? Treating me as he would treat himself isn't going to work. And in fact, Gav wouldn't necessarily do this, but he might be tempted to look down upon me. He might be tempted to judge me. And say, well, hang on, Mark, if you want me to treat you as I treat myself, if I did that, I would not expect people to love me and accept me. So I don't know how easy it's going to be for me to love and accept you. Now, I know this is crazy, but really loving each other, loving our neighbour as we love ourselves isn't going to get us there. The good news is, is that this is not what Jesus wants us to do. Now, this is confusing, so let me see if I can explain. The whole Bible really is made up of three sections. There's really Genesis 1 to 11, right? Or sorry, there's really Genesis, yeah. There's really Genesis, um, oh, actually, let's just, no, no, we won't do that. Should have practiced this in the first service. The whole Bible is really made up of two big covenants. There's the first covenant that God made with Abraham, but we'll leave that to the side. After Abraham comes the Mosaic covenant. In Exodus, God gives the Ten Commands. 
And when God gives the commands, he doesn't just give 10 commands, he gives 613 commands. You can read on in the book of Leviticus and there's some others in Deuteronomy, etc. There is a heap of commands. And under that agreement that God makes with the Israelites, under that covenant, the old covenant, it is a conditional covenant. If we are obedient to God, if we follow him, if we are faithful, he will bless us. If we are not obedient, if we are rebellious, then he will not, he will hold back his blessings. He will discipline us. And sometimes there will even be curses and consequences for our actions. The whole old agreement, the whole old covenant is a covenant based on justice and fairness. And under that covenant, under that agreement, you have things like eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If someone does the wrong thing, what should they get? If they pluck out your eye, you get to pluck out their eye. Right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It is a system based on justice and fairness. And under that system, Jesus says, if you want to know what happens, really, you are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength because that is the right and proper thing to do for a God who is over all, all people and all things. And the right and proper and fair and just thing to do is to love your neighbour and treat them as yourself. How would you like to be treated? That's how you should treat them. But then Jesus comes on the scene. He says something very confusing. Even though Jesus was a Jew and he was born under the old covenant, he was introducing a new covenant, a new agreement. And he says, you've heard heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But now I tell you, turn the other cheek. Now I tell you, go the extra mile. Now I tell you, pray for your enemies. There's a whole new agreement being established. Under the new covenant, it's not about blessings and curses based on our obedience. It is about the fact that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago by the name of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay for our sin in full. All our past sin, present sin, future sin is cast upon him. And for those of us who put our faith in him, we trust in him and his finished work on the cross on our behalf. We receive forgiveness of sins, not out of fairness, but because God is loving and gracious. It is a free gift, freely given and freely received. And what Jesus is saying is, under this new covenant, it's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's not justice. It's not fairness. Under this new covenant, it's a covenant of grace where people get what they don't deserve. So it's no longer about loving one another as ourselves, loving our neighbour as ourselves, treating others as you would like to be treated. That's the fair and right thing to do. Jesus comes along and he says something incredibly radical. He says, if you want to know how people will know you, you are Christians, you want to know what's going to define us as a community, you want to know what those on the outside are going to look in and be amazed by, this is what he says. John 13, 34. A new command I give to you. Love one another. Now, that's nothing new. What are you saying, Jesus? This was meant to be new. But then he goes on. Not as you would love yourself, not treat others as you would like to be treated, but love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. The kind of love that transforms communities, the kind of love that could transform our community groups, the kind of love that transforms societies, the kind of love that allows me to be vulnerable, to let down my guard, to truly be myself, is the kind of love that says, Gav is going to love me as Christ loved him. Which means that he loves me not because I meet his expectations. 
He loves me in the same way that Christ loved him. While Gav was still a sinner, Christ died for him. While I am still a sinner, Gav finds a way to love and accept and believe in me. There's this incredible picture of grace. We don't love one another as we've been loved. Uh, sorry, sorry, we don't love one another as, as we would like to be loved. We love one another as Christ has loved us. And that is a far greater, a far more radical kind of love. It's the kind of love that people look at and are amazed by. Let me see if I can finish by giving you one example. In John 4, John chapter 4, there's four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In this fourth biography of Jesus, uh, John tells a story about Jesus encountering a woman. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, it wasn't just the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. It's not just that he was a Samaritan. Sorry, that she was a Samaritan, but she was a woman. It wasn't actually right or proper for Jesus to be associated with a woman and to be alone with a woman. But the disciples had gone off into town and Jesus was deliberately and intentionally left there with a woman who was not a Jew, who was a Samaritan, and he was not embarrassed and not ashamed. Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water again will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here we have a very practical situation where someone wants water and Jesus switches the conversation from physical, literal water to living water. He shifts it from what is temporal to the eternal. He shifts it from what is the seen to the unseen. Now, you would think at this point, Jesus is hoping that she would engage, and she does. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She understands that he's talking about something that she doesn't have. She is thirsty. She's not satisfied with her life. She longs for something more. She's right on the edge. You would think Jesus would be like, this is the moment. This is where she's going to put her faith in me. This is where she's going to receive me into her life. So what does he do? He told her, go call your husband and come back. And you're thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Like she's, You've just switched the conversation to spiritual things. She's ready. She's open. Why are you saying go get your husband? This is the moment. Maybe after she becomes a Christian, she go get a husband. What, what are you doing? And then she says, I have no husband, she replied. And you're like, now this is getting awkward. And then Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband either. And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? You had her in this spot where she was open to spiritual things. She was ready to receive. She longed for this living water. And now you've brought up a husband and the guy's not even a husband and it's awkward and you're sitting there thinking, Jesus, why would you do this? And now you've brought up her past and the fact that she's had five husbands before in a society that would not look, look upon that favorably at all. You've exposed her, Jesus. You've allowed her to, you've basically taken down her guard. You've looked at who she is. Why, Jesus, are you doing this? 
Why would Jesus expose her like this? Doesn't, she, doesn't he know that this would embarrass her? Doesn't he know that this is the, 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 how rejected she would feel? Her whole life, man after man after man after man has rejected her and used her and spat her out. Why would he bring up these past husbands? Why would he bring this up? What is Jesus doing? Doesn't Jesus know the reason she's at the well in the middle of the day is because of the past? Like, why would you go to the well in the middle of the day? Everyone knows you go to the well in the early morning or the late afternoon when it's not hot. No one goes to the well in the middle of the day. Why does she go to the well in the middle of the day? Because no one else is around. It's just her and Jesus. She's scared. She's not accepted in society. She's not able to, to hide behind her, you know, she's not able to put up a, an image in, that she can betray. She's naked and exposed all the time. Everyone knows her past. Everyone knows her life. She doesn't feel loved. She doesn't feel accepted. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you bringing all this up? What if the reason Jesus started talking about her past and what if the reason he was talking about her sin was not because he wanted to judge her, not because he wanted to embarrass her, not because he wanted to look down upon her, but he wanted to love her. And not the kind of love that says, I'll love you as you love me, not the kind of love that says, I'll treat you as I would have you treat me, but the kind of love that says, I'll love you no matter what. What if Jesus was effectively saying, I know everything about you. I've looked at your life, I've looked at your past, I've looked at your present, I know what's going to happen in your future. I know every guy in your life has looked at you and run. And I know everyone in town looks at you and runs. But I am not leaving. I have coordinated, I have orchestrated my life so I would meet you at this very time and I am staying. I love you as you are. I'm not running, I'm not disappointed. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not looking down upon you. I am here for you. Later we read that she runs off to town. And you think she's going to run off to town and tell them about this incredible living water. But what does she say? She says, come see a man who knows everything about me. She knows that he has seen her true self. She has been exposed. And yet he did not run away. Check out this video. I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation, save that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And otherwise, what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears. That's too much to hope for, to wish for, or pray for, so I don't, not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used and abused, an outcast, a failure, a disappointment, a sinner. No drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now, but you don't. You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all those glances have been about, and you take the time to really look 
at me. But don't need to get to know me for to be known is to be loved and to be loved is to be known. And you know me, you actually know me, all of me and everything about me, every thought inside and hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread, my past and my future, all I am and could be. You tell me everything, you tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me. And here in my presence, you say, I am he. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you've shown me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And they all need this too. We all do need it for our own. Tim Keller said this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. I wonder if you'd stand with me and we'll pray. Father, we just want to acknowledge that um, none of us have our lives together. We all feel this incredible sense of brokenness and inadequacy. And God, if you are really the supernatural God of the universe, who knows all things, who sees all things, we know there's no point trying to hide. We're incredibly aware of our failings. We're incredibly aware that you see everything. We stand here naked and exposed, Father. So in this moment, would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us that you don't just love as, 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 as a sense of fairness? You don't treat us fairly. You treat us way better. You love us unconditionally. You see every part of our brokenness and our inadequacies and our failings, and you do not run, but you stay. Thank you, Jesus, that you said you'd never leave us nor forsake us. Amen.